Hello, everybody. Today is May 15, 2023. My name is Bob Chalfin, and I'm honored to be here today with my college classmate, Mace Rothenberg. Now, Mace graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, then he went to medical school at New York University. He uh, then served as a resident at Vanderbilt University, and then did a fellowship at the National Cancer Institute. After that, he taught at the University of Texas and at Vanderbilt University, and then joined Pfizer in 2008, where he rose to chief medical officer. And he was there during when, when COVID came out. And Mace, thanks for being here. I'm honored that you're here today. Thanks very much, Bob. Now, if we could just turn back the clocks of time, the clock of time, just for a little bit, COVID was being reported out of Wuhan, China towards the end of 2019. And what happened that enabled Pfizer to take the lead in developing this vaccine? Now, a lot has been discussed about the science behind this, but maybe you could just focus on the leadership that was necessary to develop the vaccine. Well, thanks, Bob. It, it, it's sometimes hard to imagine that three years has passed since uh, late 2019 when those first cases of COVID-19 were being reported out of Wuhan, China. Remember, there were a few cases reported and people were interested but not really concerned about it. But then the uh, number of individuals who were sickened rose to about 40 individuals in the first uh, 10 days after the initial case was found. Many of those people were being hospitalized and despite very intensive medical care, were dying. Um, then it was noted beginning to spread. And then within several weeks after that first case in China, by late uh, January, the first cases were being reported in the United States. And then what really terrified individuals was that people in the United States were being diagnosed who had not traveled to China. So it was clear that person-to-person -person transmission was occurring and that there was really no way of controlling this right now because it was beginning to spread worldwide. So, you know, this, this was really a reaction of Pfizer, just like any other company was, what's going on here? And I think Pfizer, because it was a worldwide organization, including having colleagues, some of which were in my group, located in Wuhan, China, were able to get an early insight into what was going on and recognize this was spreading this was a new disease, and this was a disease of concern. Second question was, what do we do? And it was really imperative to respond and respond quickly. What was at stake? Um, potential risks really affected everybody, from colleagues across our company worldwide, to, to the clients we served, to the public at large, what our obligations were in ensuring that this was not going to be disrupting Pfizer's ability to really deliver the medicines and vaccines that people needed and counted on worldwide. And then we really needed to think about what were our guiding principles, uh, really to, to fulfill our mission, to keep colleagues safe, to apply our know-how and resources to develop a vaccine and treatment in the fastest, most responsible way without cutting corners and to making sure, make sure that we had full insight into the efficacy and safety of any potential vaccines and treatments. And then to continue to provide the medicines that the world needed. So you know, these were some of the things that were very clearly established right from the very beginning uh, at the company. 
But, you know, there are many other multinational companies. So why, as you asked, why was it Pfizer that took that lead? Well, one thing was that Pfizer has an established vaccine business that accounts for about 15% of the yearly revenues this is before COVID vaccine. It had an active vaccine research and development program. Um, it was a global company with the scale, scope, and the resources to be able to apply to this unexpected crisis and challenge. Um, it also had the technology. Uh, three years before COVID-19 struck, Pfizer had established a collaboration with BioNTech, the German company, to develop an mRNA vaccine, a relatively, well, a new technology in terms of long-range uh, history of medicine, but actually a technology that exists for 15 years. But, but the relationship with, between Pfizer and BioNTech was established in around 2016 or 17 in order to develop a universal flu vaccine so that we wouldn't be guessing what the next year's strain of flu would be and trying to create a specific vaccine for that one strain, but rather one vaccine that would be able to be applied to all flu variants and therefore be able to be given once or, with, with, or periodically with better coverage and control. So that was also the mRNA technology was able to be used to rapidly create a vaccine more, more rapidly than previous uh, platforms like DNA and protein adjuvant vaccines could, could do. One other thing that isn't really acknowledged as much as it should be is that the RNA sequence of the virus was published at the end of January by Chinese scientists. We hear a lot about how China manages information flow for various reasons, but this was absolutely critical because without having that sequence, we wouldn't have had a roadmap to develop an mRNA vaccine. And then lastly, what that provided was an understanding of how the vaccine attached to the cell through something called the ACE2 receptor, and therefore providing a target against which a vaccine could be developed. So those were all the reasons why Pfizer was in the best position to be able to respond to this. But what's not often discussed is what the leadership skills and principles were that enabled this. And I just wanna go through a few of these because I think they're worthy of, of attention and, and acknowledgement. Um, first and foremost was simple, clear guidance from the CEO. Uh, Albert Borla established right from the very beginning that developing a COVID-19 vaccine in a rapid and responsible manner was going to be the single highest priority across the company. Pfizer is a worldwide company with more than 80,000 colleagues, all working um, for very specific purposes. Uh, it was made clear that whatever they were working on, if they were called with a question about COVID or to actually contribute to development of the vaccine, they were to drop what they were doing, do that. That no resources in this fight would be spared, that because of Pfizer's scale and scope and resources, it was able to apply one to $2 billion of its own money to be able to accelerate and, 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 and bring forward this vaccine in a rapid fashion. 
He also made it clear that there is going to be no discussion of return on investment. We're not going to be talking about pricing or profit for this. That was off the table. That's really a surprising move for a for-profit company like Pfizer. But that really sent a very clear message of why we're doing this. And lastly, it was not going to impact other programs. So other programs' budgets wouldn't be cut just so we could pay for developing the vaccine. The, the payments were going to be an addition to our R&D outlays of that year. So I think that communication here from the top, uh, setting the, the priority and being clear and consistent and echoed by all members of the leadership team was absolutely essential. It was, to, it was able to rally an organization to a higher purpose. But this communication also extended outside the company. So to organizations like FDA, CDC. And it's important to recognize the fact that you just can't pick up the phone and speak to a senior official at the FDA very easily, even if, if you're coming from Pfizer, that usually there would have to be a letter uh, requesting a meeting, and there would be a response to schedule the meeting. Usually the meeting would take a month or two to schedule. But those outside organizations also recognize the urgency of the situation. And what normally would take days or weeks or longer were actually taken care of in hours because there was responsiveness and an excellent communication to these agencies outside the organization. So secondly, was uh, industry collaboration, um, which is something unusual in a highly competitive area like pharmaceuticals. Um, and it's contrary to our culture. Um, but I think what people recognized was that we were fighting a common enemy and that sharing resources and expertise and capacity like manufacturing capacity was going to enable us as a uh, uh, medical research and development organization and ecosystem to rise to the challenge and develop an effective uh, vaccine for, for COVID. Um, so I think what this demonstrated was organizational and operational courage and agility to recognize the unique situation that required extraordinary measures and that the benefit of these changes outweighed the risk and the ability and the courage to act even when there was no precedent or roadmap. And I think sometimes in any situation with any organization, whether it be a company or um, a, 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 a church or, or synagogue or even your family, that there are certain processes and procedures that are in place the ability to recognize, you know what, these aren't suiting us well in this particular extraordinary circumstance. We need to change in order to respond effectively. I think that that, that was something that we need to be aware of and do more often. The third area was um, creating uh, and empowering groups within the, in the company to take action, um, including groups that were COVID task force, which I was a member in the critical medicines initiative that I led. Um, and this, the, the COVID task force involved experts that were drawn from all parts of the company and even some external experts to be able to um, track and then interpret data that was coming in on a daily basis that was helping to fit in different pieces of the, of the puzzle and help us understand what was causing this disease and what actions we should take in order to keep our, our employees safe, to make sure that our practices were appropriate for the environment, and to make sure we we're fulfilling our commitments. 
um, and talking about commitments, the Critical Medicines Initiative acknowledged the fact that Pfizer wasn't just developing the vaccine and nothing else. It still had to produce the hundreds of other medicines that it, it was responsible for, some of which Pfizer was the main or the only su supplier. And so the group, the Critical Medicines Initiative, took a look at which, which medicines were critical for the uh, uh, treatment of people who are critically ill, including with COVID. Turns out that list was 77 medicines long and without any consideration of revenues or the profits that were made from those medicines, we committed to protecting the supply of those no matter what, making sure that manufacturing could keep pace with the demand. And in some cases, demand for these medicines quadrupled from pre-COVID. So being able to scale up, again, using the, the resources available to a, a large company like Pfizer, scale up to meet the demand not have any patients suffer because of lack of those medicines. So I think that the principle here was the ability to empower others and to push decision-making down to an appropriate level within the company to respond in a timely fashion to this rapidly evolving, changing situation. Then lastly was the ability to create new processes that were tailored to the need of developing the vaccine. One such process was called Project Lightspeed which is still in place today. Uh, this is a way of streamlining and simplifying clinical development so that things that used to be done in sequence were now looked at anew to say, well, can we do them maybe in an overlapping fashion? Can we do some things in parallel? We recognize that this may not be the most cost-effective way of doing things, but it is gonna be able to allow us to make progress fastest. So as an example, uh, there were actually two versions of the potential COVID-19 vaccine that went into clinical testing. There was a third one that was being evaluated in the laboratory. And because we didn't know which of those was going to be selected for phase three development, uh, Pfizer scaled up production of both, knowing that one of those was just not going to be used and that money was not going to be uh, utilized um, to advance the, the vaccine. But it was worthwhile because what it meant is that we could move rapidly from phase one into phase three, which is what happened in early 2020. So I think that um, you know, these are just, just some examples of what, what put Pfizer in that uh, unique situation. So it was recognizing the problem, it was rising to the challenge, rallying an organization, communicating actions and goals clearly, consistently, creating an environment for success and cultivating trust with key external partners. Now, this must have been a very exciting time to be at Pfizer, and I don't want to cut your story short, but at what point did you realize we're going to come out with a vaccine? We're going to have one. <laughs> I, I think uh, even from phase one, which is typically where you test various doses and look for side effects of the medicine or vaccine. And uh, we knew what to look for, and that was something called the production of neutralizing antibodies. And by looking at the level of neutralizing antibodies of people who had actually caught contracted COVID before the vaccine was available, uh, and what, what those rose to, we had a target for what we wanted the neutralizing antibody titer to be. So we saw what levels, what doses of the vaccine can produce that, which one gave sort of the best balance between that measure of efficacy and safety, and then we moved forward. So I, I think when we moved into phase three, uh, uh, we were fairly confident 
that it was going to be successful. The question was how successful. The FDA had set a minimum requirement, at least 50% efficacy, in order for it to get emergency use authorization. So within the company, when we meet, kind of kick around the idea, sort of like an office pool, what do you predict it's going to be? So some people were a bit more optimistic. They said 60, 65, even 70%. But when um, the, the data monitoring committee reviewed the data and then found that the vaccine was effective, the level of, of efficacy stunned us. It was 95% effective. So, so who won the pool for that? <laughs> you know what? I, the highest estimate of efficacy that I personally heard was 75%. So we had no winners because it was better than we had anticipated. Wow. So I said, I cut you off. So I want you continue with your story. I'm sorry. Right. Well, you know, you know, looking at this in context, because we're now fortunately at the tail end of the pandemic, as you know, last week, um, the U.S. government declared that the uh, public health crisis and pandemic was finished. We're now moving into an endemic phase. So it's not that COVID-19 has gone away. That that's now going to be more of that seasonal respiratory virus um, that um, we, we deal with, whether it's common cold or it's respiratory syncytial virus or it's the flu. So uh, there, there are now some of the special measures that were taking place, masking, um, uh, confirmation of vaccine status. We can step away from that now and um, return more to our pre-COVID um, methods of, of, of interacting. Um, but you know, through this, we, we all heard about people who are skeptical um, of the vaccine, feel it's not as effective, not as safe as it has been portrayed. And people are just wondering, is that all due to politics? Um, you know, actually, there is evidence that this rising distrust in medicines and science preceded COVID. That in a, a paper um, that was published in 2021, but looked at data from 2015 to 2018, they looked at um, the um, HPV vaccine, which has been around for 17 years, that prevents human papillomavirus uh, infections, and is shown to effectively um, reduce substantially the, the incidence of certain genital cancers, like cervical cancer, and some oral pharyngeal cancers. Um, so this has been recommended for uh, uh, teenagers and preteens, as well as um, adults who are young or middle aged. And yet only 56% of uh, eligible individuals today are getting HPV vaccine. So this group actually studied the reasons for that. And you know, there was no change during this period of time in people who felt it was effective or that they didn't need it. But the one thing that changed was the perception of safety. That, it, that, that went up by about 75% between 20, 2015 and 2018. The perception of worse safety increased, almost doubled. The interesting thing is when you look at the data, the safety reporting, that actually there were fewer side effects, fewer serious adverse events in 2018 than there were in 2015. That the perception is at variance with the reality. And so I think what this that this exposes is that there is a growing mistrust and distrust of science and medicine in our society. And that's been addressed just this past year by the Pew Foundation, which actually asked people um, what, what was their level of trust in medical science and in science in general. 
and medical science between um, 2020 and 2021, those people who had a great deal of, of confidence um, in the integrity of medical scientists decreased by a third. And those who used confidence in scientists overall decreased by about a quarter. And at the same time, people who said they don't trust or they, they have no confidence at all in science increased more than doubled. So there's something going on here that's, that, that really should be a concern because what this is doing is this is causing people to question recommendations that their doctors or public health officials are making uh, and to make decisions that are going to potentially lead them to be more likely to develop disease or not, not avail themselves of effective treatments now. And in the long run, this could actually cost more lives than the yes. COVID-19 pandemic. That you just recounted about Pfizer and how it was the single most important priority. There was not a discussion about return on investment and it would not impact other programs is very inspiring to me and I hope to others on this. But maybe you could just continue a little bit more and also hopefully this may allay or or reduce the skepticism that people have about the, the information they yeah, receive. And, and, and while again COVID and, and measures to meet the challenge were you know, lead stories in every news broadcast and headlines in every newspaper. This mistrust in medicine and science isn't. Um, it is there, every week I read something about it, but it's not making headlines. Um, and I think that this is a sort of silent and, and, and uh, sneaky problem that's, that's as big a crisis because the cause of inaction is really uh, avoidable illness, disability, and, and death. And so I, I've, I've, my whole career in initially cancer drug development um, was all about developing medicines to meet unmet medical needs. And when I think about this crisis in confidence in science and medicine, that, that's also a need that no one is really stepping up. It seems that there's an academia, government, or industry are all acknowledging this is a problem, but no one is really saying, and here's what we're going to do about it. So I felt that something needed to be done. And so um, about a year ago, I uh, began in earnest developing a concept that it will help to uh, address some of those, those challenges. And that's really led to what's now called the Museum of Medicine Biomedical Discovery. Um, and the, the whole, let me just read to you the vision for this, this museum. Okay, but so before we move on to that, you've discussed about the um, initiative that Pfizer took. Is there anything else you want to discuss in that before we talk about your uh, the bold initiative that you're taking now? Yeah, no, I think we covered it pretty well. Okay, well, thank you. So let's go on. Okay, so the vision for the museum is, I'll read this, it's a, a place where past achievements in biomedical science and medicine can be appreciated and future achievements could be envisioned place where the excitement is palpable, where future generations will be inspired to pursue careers that improve human health and life. And my hope is in a place like this, after someone visits the museum, they will feel at the end, I know, I trust, and I can imagine myself. So I've now had a chance to work on this with some really talented people from all areas related to this, from, from basic science, uh, to uh, legal, to um, uh, 
uh, envisioning what this uh, would look like architecturally to museum design firms, uh, to people who are uh, experts in, um, in presenting this kind of information. And one of the things that I think is very important is that this museum be different from the dozens or hundreds of other medical museums that already exist. Those museums tend to be focused on a particular theme or collection and involve artifacts behind glass, whether it be books, anatomical abnormalities, uh, Civil War era surgical instruments, where people can learn about these things. But it's not necessarily the way non-experts learn. I'd like this museum to really focus on more of a narrative approach, telling stories of why today we're not talking about the polio epidemic. Uh, we're seeing people with deadly diseases like HIV who are living decades, um, where advances in transplants are allowing people whose hearts or lungs or kidneys no longer function to have a new lease on life. So I, I feel that by presenting this in that fashion, it will be more accessible to people uh, through these amazing stories. I want all of this also to be interactive. It's not going to be uh, displays behind glass, but things where people could interact um, with, with immersive technologies like virtual reality, augmented or mixed reality, uh, holograms, um, and interactive kiosks. So people from ages of children to adults could find that information that's appropriate for their level and learn something that could impact not only their body of knowledge, but the decisions they make about their own health. And, and I'm very excited about this. So let me just give you an example, if I could, about one room in this museum. And that would be um, something that, again, is kind of in the background now, and that's type one diabetes. These are typically children or young adults whose pancreas can no longer produce insulin, and who can no longer control their blood sugar. So in this room, um, you would first be met by a hologram that appears of a six-year-old girl, 1920. And you could tell right away, she's, she's thin, um, she's weak, she's frail, she's not able to keep up with the other kids. And she's telling you what her life is like. And the fact of the matter is that this child is unlikely to live to see eight or 10 years old because in 1920, there was no effective treatment for type one diabetes. So that hologram disappears, and then you move into the first part of the exhibit that shows you the first experiments done in 1921, where they showed in a, a dog uh, in a laboratory whose pancreas had been removed. If you actually in, in, infused um, the, the elements or parts of the pancreas from other dogs, that uh, that dog's high blood sugar could actually come down. Um, and then the next year where they identified the substance that did that called insulin. And then the next year where first uh, a patient, a 16 year old boy received in, with type one diabetes received insulin and actually had his blood sugar come, come down to the next year where Banting and Best won the Nobel Prize for their discovery. And the fact that over the next few decades, how insulin was, pure, was produced on large scale, purified, new long-acting versions were made and changed the lives of thousands of individuals who now are living well into adulthood um, because of their diabetes was controlled. To 1982, where new technology, recombinant DNA uh, cloning technology was applied to insulin to actually produce human insulin in the laboratory that people could get human insulin and not have to worry about uh, re allergic reactions to receiving 
insulin that had been derived from cows or pigs into today uh, and where a, a, a new hologram would come up of that same, same six-year-old girl, but instead of being in 1920, it was now in 2023. And you could see her living a normal, happy, healthy life, indulging in all the activities of her peers because her insulin is controlled. And she would show you her glucose monitor that is monitoring her blood sugar constantly and the insulin infusion pump that is adjusting the insulin in her body based on blood sugar level. And then that hologram would go away and go to the last part of the exhibit where you'd be able to see what we're working on now. Uh, things like understanding the, why people develop type one diabetes, the role of the immune system, efforts to try and uh, transplant islet cells and, and have them take so that people could produce insulin on their own despite having type one diabetes or creation of an artificial pancreas. The hope there, there's still more work to be done and so this is one example of how people who don't really think about uh, th this kind of uh, problem could, could, could see how science, um, scientific discoveries translate into medical advances that actually can change the lives of thousands of people. And this happened again and again and again. And that's the kind of feeling that I want to, to have in the museum. Well, that's pretty neat, and it's just to me, it's very uh, exciting to see how you've gone from one bold initiative to another. And your talk today has been ex instructional, inspiring, motivate motivating to everyone, and it gives me a tremendous hope for the future. So I really appreciate that you've taken the time to talk to us about this. Now, I'm certain some of the listeners will have some other questions for you. And if they want to contact you, what's the best way that they could contact you? Sure thing. You could contact me at mace.rothenberg. That's mmbd.org. That's for Museum of Medicine and Biomedical Discovery.org. Well, you've been my friend for more years than you and I want to count. But I just want you to know how proud I am of what you've done and what you've accomplished and how you've helped so many people. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to share your uh, thoughts with us today. Well, thank you, Bob, for the privilege of, of appearing on your podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.